Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. Good to see you both. I see you a lot. I know. I know you get sick of seeing me, don't you, <laughs> Never. Oh, come Never. on. I know you do. This is so special. I've enjoyed doing this podcast, but to, to look in your eyes, people who are, yes, colleagues, but also dear friends, and we have so much in common. We have our somethings, if you will, and everybody's something is unique. Everyone's journey is unique. And when I say we have a lot of common, yes, yes, we both are journalists and colleagues and you know, all that good stuff. But the fact that we, for some reason, decided to share our somethings in hopes of helping others. So sitting next to me, Amy Robach and Dan Harris. Amy's something, breast cancer. Dan's, anxiety. So acute, it led to panic attacks. Both Amy and Dan, like me, went public with their somethings, Though, as you will hear later, not intentionally at first. So today, we join together to look at the importance of certain things I cannot stress enough. Community, friendship, reaching out, and maybe this most of all. When you let people in and you let people help you, it is such a gift to receive love that I never fully let myself experience until I went through this. To go out and just tell the story and get it all out there and really be just super, super honest, um, it made an irrevocable change in the way I am in public now. That's right. Letting people in, being open, honest, and vulnerable. We're going to find out how that kind of medicine for the soul helped all three of us find the resources to push through some mighty tough times. Feel it in your heart. Everybody's got a little something Something that makes them feel gold Hi, I'm Robin Roberts, and this is my podcast, Everybody's Got Something, a phrase my dear mama used to say. It's what I live by, because everybody, and I'm talking everybody, experiences a life challenge at some point. And it's what you learn from that experience, how you grow from it, that really defines who you are. So let me just explain how today's show came into being. You know, lots of people have asked, what's it like to be so public with all the things you've gone through? And I want everyone to know, it isn't something you ever plan to do. But once it happens, you come to realize it's an honor to be a messenger. In fact, I would say my mother understood the importance of that before I did. You see, in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit, before I even got diagnosed with cancer, I found myself caught between a rock and a hard place, having to report on the hurricane and wanting to be with my family, make sure they were safe. And it was my mom who said to get back on the air because people needed to hear the truth of what was going on. That stuck with me. People needed to hear the truth of what's going on, whether it's a deadly storm, sickness, anything. Because when we talk to each other, we share our stories, we learn we're not alone. And as it turns out, several of my ABC colleagues and friends have also found themselves in a similar position of publicly sharing their stories. So today, Dan Harris and Amy Robach open up about their somethings, and we explore how going public redefined all of our lives. I want people to get the backstory from both of you. So I'm going to start with you first, Amy, since you see me all the time. Okay. Um, 2013, 
it's the fall. And typical GMA fashion, you know, we're always trying to do something new and different. And, and they said, um, let's do a mammogram live on television, a live mammogram. So we can um, tell women and men get, you know, that should have mammograms too. But we want to tell people that they need to take action and they need to do whatever they can because early detection can save lives. So you, I'll never forget, Amy, you walking into my dressing room because you were like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I, I remember I walked in and I said, Robin, can I talk to you about something? And you said, sure, come on in. And I said, they're asking me to do a live mammogram in the middle of Times Square next week to kick off Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And you said to me, <laughs> oh, you're the one they asked? <laughs> does that sound about right? Yeah, that does sound about right. <laughs> and I said, exactly, why me? I have no connection to the disease. If you had said no, it was going to be me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dan, I mean. Dan was next. That was the next phone call. And you never had a mammogram. I had never had a mammogram. Right. I was 40, but... I did not believe that it was even remotely possible that I had breast cancer. I wasn't in any hurry and had no plans to get a mammogram because I had read and actually announced some of those new guidelines saying women who were at average risk, who had no family history, could wait until they were 50. So tell Ms. Procrastinator and someone who hates doctors that they don't have to go, I'm not going to go. So I felt insincere or inauthentic to then go on television and tell everyone that they should get their mammograms when I wasn't going to be getting mine. And you said something you said many things that were very powerful to me in that moment. You first told me that family history didn't matter. That's right. Eighty percent of those diagnosed don't have a family history. And then, I, I didn't mean, know that. I mean, not many people too, because it's drilled in our head. If you have a family history, and then you find out that the vast majority don't. So then, you know, looking back now, why are we even saying that women are at average risk? That anyone's at average risk? If more than eighty percent of breast cancer patients don't have a connection to the disease, have no family history, how is there such a thing as an average woman? So it's maddening now after the fact. But thank God you said that to me because it hit me. Like a bullet. I mean, I remember it feeling like a watershed moment. Mm. I thought, wow, there's so much I don't know. I actually thought it was probably the opposite, you know, that right. maybe only 20 percent. A lot of people feel that way. Right. So you you opened my eye on that one. And then you said the thing that absolutely made up my mind to do this thing, <laughs> to have a mammogram in front of five million people. You said to me, I guarantee you, if you walk into that mammogram, and I know it's going to be uncomfortable physically and emotionally and mentally and all of the above. But if you walk into that mamma van, you will save a life. Right. You said someone will go and have their mammogram who wasn't planning on it and they will find their cancer early and you will save a life. And I remember feeling like a wave of emotion going over me when you said that to me because I knew what I had to say next. I'm going to do it. Yes. And I asked if I could hug you. Yeah. Let me pause a moment here to explain. GMA set up a live mammogram in Times Square in what's known as a mammovan, a mobile unit with digital imaging equipment inside, all to promote the importance of being proactive about mammograms. And I just want to add, it was also to raise awareness about how many people in underserved communities are not tested because they don't have access to or can't afford a mammogram. So across the country, mammovans provide free screening, a truly great thing. Okay, that's where we pick up with Amy. She went into the mammovan, and when she came out, here's what happened at first. How are you? Good. How are 
hunt. You did it. Yeah. How was it? Honestly, I, I was prepared to say exactly how it felt. And it hurt so much less than I thought it yeah. was going to hurt. It was like nothing. Very happy for you. Your, your doctor is going to re- receive the results. Yes, that will be between the two of us. And Absolutely. we'll consult within a day or two. We okay. get the results back. So Very happy. thank you for oh, no, no, uh, no, no. pushing me in the right direction. She Robin. did it. Amy's doctor did receive the results, but things did not go as Amy expected. Our good friend Amy Robach is here. She has something important to share. Last month, you may remember that she took a very brave step live here on Good Morning America, getting a mammogram, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Robin. Well, I decided to take one for the team. This was for me about public service because you know I didn't really want to have that mammogram. Um, And just a few short weeks later, words I never expected to hear, I was told that I have breast cancer. It was, of course, devastating news. And thankfully, Amy, who documented her cancer journey in her book, Better, is now cancer-free. But what we're looking at today is part of that journey, specifically what it's like to be out about breast cancer, if you will. How being open in a way Amy never expected in front of millions of people deeply affected her life. Now let's roll back to when Amy first came to ask me if she should do the mammogram. Here's Amy explaining what really happened, and she didn't even know. I was telling you I had no connection to the Mm -hmm. disease. I was standing there in your dressing room with stage 2 invasive breast cancer that had already spread to my lymph node. And had no idea. And had no idea. Felt perfectly healthy. I was the right person to do that at the right time, and you're you're the person who gave me the nudge. You're the person who told me, that it was the right thing to do and that it would save a life. And so because you gave me that nudge and you absolutely saved my life, I will always believe that, I feel like it's on me. The onus is on me now to give back and to pay it forward and to let other women know that they have to take their health seriously, that they have to make those appointments, they have to keep those appointments, and they have to stay on top of their health. And you are an an advocate. You go around the country speaking. And I'm humbled that you say I saved your life. You saved your life. It's about taking ownership and taking action. And you walked into that mammo van. You followed up. And because you had only one breast done, and it was after the air, you know, Dan, you know, when we're finished, like, oh, we got we got what we need for TV. <laughs> and, and what did the technician say to you? I was about to leave. And she said, you know, you didn't finish your mammogram. You need to come on here and do your second breast before we leave. And I, there was a part of me that thought, nah, I'm not going to do it. But then I thought it'll it'll bother me that I made our viewers think I did it. Right. And I only half did it. So, again, for the authenticity of it all, I was like, I have to go. The journalist in me, I have to go finish it. And, you know, I'm not sure which one they did. But, you know, you'll, I'll never I, – I don't remember. But I know that, thank God, I had them both done. And thank God that technician read my charts correctly and saw something. She didn't know what she saw, but something seemed a little suspicious. And they called me back, and it was the follow-up that ultimately led to the breast cancer diagnosis. But you've also taught me through both of your cancer fights the power of one story, mm-hmm. the power of one voice, because everyone who heard your story suddenly thought, wow, I need to make sure that I'm on top of my health. I need to tell every woman in my life that she has to keep these appointments, make these appointments, check her body, know her body, 
Trust if you feel something off. Go and find out. Get second opinions. And so every time you tell your story, every time I tell my story, hopefully people continue to rally and tell their stories and nudge their mothers and sisters and daughters and friends and loved ones. Because as you mentioned, men can get breast cancer too. And this isn't just about breast cancer. I actually had a really beautiful moment um, a couple months ago where a man tweeted me and said, he had a lump on his neck. And he said, the macho guy in me would have just figured it was this, you know, whatever, some calcium deposit, something just popped up. And I never would have thought twice about it. I never would have thought I could have cancer. And he said, I remembered your story. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go get this checked out. It was lymphoma. Mm. And wow. he texted, you know, he tweeted me actually. Right. And he said, thank you for telling your story because if I hadn't heard your story, I would not have gotten this checked out. You told your story. You told your story and so beautifully well. Let's hear Dan Harris's story. <laughs> 2004. Good morning, America. You're on. What happened? Filling in for you. Yeah, I remember. Uh, you were, you were, I think. Traveling the world. <clears throat> you were. Covering. I think you were covering Ronald Reagan's funeral. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And I was, there was a period of time when you, you were the newsreader and mm -hmm. I, I filled in for you quite a bit. Right. And, uh, yeah, my story is a little less dignified than Amy's. Um, I, uh, had a panic attack that morning, June of 2004, uh, in front of – I went back and checked the ratings because I'm a huge masochist <laughs> and 5.019 million people. Saw your panic attack. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, awesome. Not. It was a scary thing to go through, as you're about to hear. I'm going to play part of the report Dan did for ABC about his panic attack. And as you listen to it happen, take note of Dan's speech pattern. You'll also hear how he becomes increasingly breathless as the anxiety rises in what Dan describes as the most embarrassing day in his life. And the reason this is the most embarrassing day of my life is not that it looks like I've been attacked by a blow dryer and a can of hairspray. No, it's that I am about to freak out on national television. Health news now. One of the world's most commonly prescribed medications may be providing a big bonus. Researchers report people who take cholesterol-lowering drugs called statins for at least five years may also lower their risk for cancer. But it's too early to, to prescribe statins slowly for cancer production. At this point, I realize I'm helpless, so I bail right in the middle. So he gets the copy confused. He's nervous and fumbling. And what you aren't able to see is the I'm holding on for dear life look on Dan's face. And the thing is, what he was going through, lots of people experience. In fact, panic disorders affect nearly 1 in 20 adults, and that's according to the National Institute of Mental Health. And once you have a panic attack, you're not likely to forget it. Case in point, Dan. Describe the panic attack. Yeah, what sure, you... sure. Um, I was a few seconds into, you know how Amy's does this every day. So you, you're, you, you're a few seconds, you have like six or seven stories you got to read. And I'm a few seconds into it. You know, uh, it was the, the main anchors that day were uh, Charlie Gibson, and Diane Sawyer. They toss it over to me to do the headlines. And so I've, I'd done it before. I didn't have any reason to be nervous. And um, I start reading uh, the stories off of the uh, teleprompter. And all of a sudden, this just wave of fear rolls over me and I my heart starts racing my my palms are sweating my mouth dries up my lungs seize up I just can't breathe I have to quit right in the middle and I mm. uh 
I had had, you know, fear before on the air where you have that little voice in your head sure, saying, you know, sure. you're, you're messing up, man. What are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. You know that little voice. <laughs> right. But, but <laughs> we all, you, yeah, yes, we know we that. Do. You should shout expletives and run away, whatever, that little <laughs> imp in your head. Um, but this was different. This was paralytic. I mean, I just couldn't function. And, um, and the more worried I got about what was happening, the less able I was to function. So I had to kick it back to sort of squeak out back to you. Uh, I actually said, I think I said back to you, Ch- uh, Robin and Charlie. Hmm. Let's check that. Uh, that does it for news. We're going to go back now to Robin and Charlie. Yep. He sure did. But it was actually Diane and Charlie. And um, Diane and I are often confused. So you're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Separated at birth. <laughs> exactly. Um, and... Uh, you know, afterwards, uh, I kind of lied and uh, no, I kind of lied, definitely lied and said I didn't know what happened. It was just I choked and, and but I knew what had happened, that I had had a panic attack. And the backstory is the really embarrassing part, which is that um, I had spent a lot of time as a young, eager reporter in war zones. Um, I was in uh, um, Afghanistan many times right after 9-11, Pakistan, Israel, the West Bank, Gaza. And then I made like six or seven runs to Iraq and um uh, I really liked it. Not not that I liked the violence. I mean, I didn't I didn't even play contact sports as a kid. But I mean, I liked the importance of the work and the and frankly, it was very thrilling. And when I got home from spending a lot of time overseas, I got depressed because I in, in hindsight, I know that I was kind of in, in adrenaline withdrawal. I was really hooked on on that lifestyle. Hmm. And um, my way of coping with it was very stupid, which is that I started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine and ecstasy. And after I had the panic attack, I went to a shrink who is an expert in panic. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And he asked me a bunch of questions to try to figure out what had gone wrong. And um, one of the questions was, do you do drugs? And I, I said kind of sheepishly, yeah. And he gave me a look that communicated the following sentiment. Um, OK, moron, mystery solved. And he was like, wow. yeah, yeah you, you even though I hadn't been doing drugs that often, it wasn't like I was doing it every day and I, I wasn't doing it on the air or at work or anything like that. It, um, he was like, it's enough to artificially raise the level of adrenaline in your brain. And it primed me to have this freak out. So you think it's helping you, but it's actually helping to cause the panic attack. I don't even know if I can say I thought about it. You know, it felt uh. good. I didn't even know I was depressed. You know, like this is how kind of it was this cascade of mindless decisions. It was all like fueled by this ambition and curiosity and 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 sense of idealism about the work. And um, and then it caught up with me and um, I, I got depressed without knowing it and then started doing these. I had never done hard drugs before. I was 32 and it made me feel better. And uh, yeah, it bit me in the butt. But um, I remember when you decided to tell your story, Dan, and I remember talking to you and you had had written this book. And you came to me. We were. I, I remember this this, conver- this conversation because you knew I had written a book, and it's very difficult for us to go go public. People don't realize that it's very difficult to share. It's tough enough to go through this, but to go through it and let people in, um, complete strangers, and you were concerned that people, once they knew that you did cocaine and ecstasy and you suffered from depression and all these things, you thought people would look at you differently. And there was, uh, I wouldn't say there was a fear, but there was a real concern. I felt that right before you released your book. Did you feel? Yeah, I would say fear, bordering on another panic attack. Really? Like, real really? Fear. Really? Yeah. A couple of weeks before the book came out, my mom, who I love and I'm very close with, oh, sent me wonderful. an email and said, don't do it. And the books were printed and sitting in a warehouse. Your mom said, don't do it? Yep. She was just worried, you know, she was being a good mom. She yeah, was really worried yeah, that sure. I was going to destroy myself. And, and, and were you worried about that too? Oh, yes. 
Yes. Yes. For you guys, going public is I really don't think you had a choice. And also, not, not only did you not have a choice because of the possibility of losing your hair and that you might look differently some days and that you weren't going to be there some days because you were getting treatment. Also, because it's kind of a no brainer from a public health perspective to go public, you know, to, right. because it's so you say you absolutely both saved countless lives. I decided to do it because I, as a result of having this panic attack, ultimately found meditation, which really was useful to me. And I felt that, too, was a public health message. A little less obvious thing to do, though. And I could have written about meditation without talking about my own personal stupidity. But I thought if I was going to if I was really going to do this, I should keep it real. And I didn't want to write a book about meditation and have somebody leak later that I you know, Absolute, had right. my own personal peccadilloes that I wasn't honest about. So I, I really felt like I had to, if I was going to go there, I needed to go there. But I was really, really worried. And I have to tell you, it's humbling, truly humbling. I feel like People use this word humbling in ways that I find annoying. Like when they win an Oscar, they say, this is humbling. It's not humbling. But (laughs) what was humbling for me about the book was that I realized that, like, people don't really care about me. Like, I'm like my interest with the things that happen to me that are mildly interesting to people. Yeah. okay. so he, too, is an idiot like everybody. Uh, So that's like kind of amusing. But what they wanted to know was, what do you have for me, Harris? And I actually felt like I had something useful, which was, hey, I found this thing, meditation, which I always thought was weird. But actually, there's a lot of science that says it's it's really good for you. And that's what I've got for you. Yeah. And we're going to talk about meditation a little bit later. I did it this morning and I started doing it in part because of because of you. Amy, like all journalists, we don't want to be the story. And you were very hesitant because you knew that you would become and you were very uncomfortable about that. You know, the shoe was on the other foot now. You, how did you handle it? I actually, um, you know, when I first went public, felt really proud about letting women know how um, we're all vulnerable. If you're a woman and you're getting older, um, you're at greatest risk for, for becoming a breast cancer patient. That's just the truth. Those are the two biggest risk factors, being a woman and getting older. And I thought it was a no-brainer to tell people about getting early detection and your surgical options. I advocated for no specific surgical option, but I chose a double mastectomy for a lot of personal reasons. It turned out to be the correct one because they found a second malignant tumor. I had precancerous cells all in my other breast. So it was the right choice for me. What I wasn't totally prepared for was some backlash because there are many groups, many cancer groups out there who don't agree with certain treatments, don't agree with where the funding is going. And I was naive to all of it because I was just walking into this world. And I have amended my message because there are many people in the breast cancer community specifically, as you know, Robin, who are stage four metastatic. There is no cure. It is terminal. And Robin and I are both um, a part of that group, early stage breast cancers, one through three, who could develop metastatic breast cancer. Right. We could become a part of that statistic. 30% of early stage breast cancer patients become metastatic. And so there's this large group of people who feel like they aren't heard. All the funding goes to early detection, in their opinion. So all the walks for life and, you know, a lot of the fundraising goes to get the word out, to get your mammogram, to self-exams, all of the above, but not enough, they believe. And I think we can all agree, you know, goes, funding goes to finding a cure. And so I got a lot of backlash. Remember when you made that speech and you said that early detection can save your life. Yes. And somebody was in the audience and they did not agree and they let you hear it. They wrote a scathing article about me and I 
could barely function for like two days. It tore me to bits. The things this man wrote about me were so horrible. And I thought I was doing good. And I thought my message was correct. I immediately called my oncologist and said, am I saying anything wrong? Am I advocating anything wrong? Is my message off point? I want to make sure I don't offend anyone. I don't I don't want to give the impression that people who die of cancer didn't fight hard enough, didn't find their cancer early enough, that somehow it's their fault that they died, that I somehow fought harder or better because I had a double mastectomy or because I did have my mammogram at 40 and they didn't. And so it, I realized all the sensitivities that are out there and I had to really rethink how I was saying what I was saying. My mm. message is the same, but I've absolutely had to learn to recraft how I say it because I, the last thing I want to do is offend someone or upset someone or say something that changes the narrative in a negative direction. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And it's been a journey. And I'm actually happy that I went through that because I believe that what I have to say now when I speak around the country is a better message than it was before because it's more inclusive and it's with all of the sensitivities that need to be there. Mm, yeah. But you don't, you know, you don't know. You, you, don't, you don't know what you don't know. And cancer is not one size fits all. No. Can I just say something because I'm very fond of you and you're my friend and also this applies to you as well. Just notwithstanding the complexities, which I take very seriously, the fact that both of you I just I think it bears repeating the fact that both of you were willing to be so public about these very personal struggles has saved lives. Let me give you an example um, or what may be an example. Not long ago, my wife found a lump and I think uh, she took it more seriously because she hears stories like yours. My goodness, I will admit when Dan said that about his wife, Bianca, once again, it was a moment to recognize the importance of sharing our somethings. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So Amy Robach, Dan Harris, and I have been exploring what happens when you share something very private and personal in a big public way. We've looked at what's hard and most of all, what's rewarding. And for each of us, the gift of being open about what we've gone through boils down to the times we discover we've actually made a difference in other people's lives. It's truly humbling. Which brings us back to where we left off. Dan revealing the frightening experience his wife recently underwent when she found a lump in her breast. It turned out it was early stage breast cancer and she had to get a double mastectomy. And I think if more people like you don't come out and say what you have said, again, understanding that there are complexities. But if people don't in your position with your perch, your public perch, don't come out and explain what you're going through, then it's to the detriment of public health. I'm uh, very kind of you to say, Dan, and I, I know, and I know with Amy and I know with you, 
Look, we are abundantly blessed. We have, we're so lucky that we work for a news division and a company that has stood by us. And not everybody has that kind of, of support system. But first of all, Bianca's okay? Yeah, she's, like, she's oh. great. She's, uh, she's, she just she's, had her final reconstruction surgery oh, the other day. Wow. I mean, it's a nightmare, but it's, she's, she's I'm glad she's, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm so, so happy I know. for I'm glad, Bianca. I'm glad. And your little baby boy. And you know what yeah, was really sweet? Boy. That Dan actually called Andrew, my husband. And that's also, you know, a beautiful part of the story when you hear from the caregivers. Because you, yes. Dan, and my husband, Andrew, and I know that all of the people who stand behind all of us, Amber for you, Robin, mm-hmm. they're the unsung heroes. Yep. And they have to bear the brunt of the drugs we're on. <laughs> oh, oh the, all the joy. And continue to be on. Andrew's got a lovely decade of tamoxifen. But, you know, you all are the unsung heroes who, who helped us get out of bed each day. Mm. And in those low moments when we didn't want anyone else to see, we could break down and be at our most vulnerable with our loved ones. I remember distinctly when I was just in a, oof, I, the drugs had taken over and I was not myself. And I lit into Amber about something that should have been a two that I was making a 10. And she was just taking it, taking it, taking it, taking it. And then she, and I was all ready, like, okay, come back. What you got? And she said, it's not you. It's the predisome. It's not you talking. It's the predisome. Wow. And I was like, oh, oh, I still get emotional that mm-hmm. she understood and didn't hold me accountable for it and just held my hand. So you got to get through it. It's, this is not you. It, it's the predisome. When we're t- talking about the panic attacks and you were mentioning about the negative voices, and I think we all have those negative voices that we're hearing. And I know that some people, when they hear you say that, Dan, because they see you on the on the weekend, and I love I love the GMA weekend crew. It's so oh good. my Thank gosh, you. I love watching between my toes. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm in bed <laughs> on the weekends, walk, watching between my toes, and 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 your whole whole family there. And so people see you, and they go, they they have doubts. They're like, really, really, did, did that really happen? Yeah, because he seems so cocky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, specifically, what negative thoughts were you having? Look, the, the the fact of the matter is we all have a voice in our heads. And I'm not talking about schizophrenia or hearing voices. We have an internal narrator that chases us out of bed in the morning and is yammering at us all day long. And we're constantly like wanting stuff, not wanting stuff, judging people, comparing ourselves to other people, thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever's happening right now. Mm. I have a friend who jokes that when he thinks about the voice in his head, he feels like he's been kidnapped by the most boring person alive <laughs> who says the same crap over and over. Most of it negative, yeah. all of it self-referential. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I uh, you know, my father had an expression, which is the price of security is insecurity. And so, Ooh, this, yeah, it's, a, it's, wow. it's clever, but tough wow. thing to hear when you're young. And so, um, uh, you know, me, my parents are both um, cancer doctors, actually, mm-hmm. and um, they are very ambitious and a very, in a, and I think a very tasteful and um, wonderful way, but they're very ambitious. And I was very ambitious. I still am very, very ambitious. And so I think a lot of the voice in my head was around who, who you know, how good was my last story? What's my next story going to be? <laughs> who got the story that I wanted? What's my relationship with the bosses? Blah, blah, blah. And I had this sense that there was a direct relationship between the intensity of my anxiety and, and whatever success ah, I was achieving. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I believe that the price of security was insecurity. Wow. You know, I learned later that my father's expression 
He actually didn't believe that per se, but it was his way of making me feel better about being a worrier when I was a kid. Ugh. So he actually, that wasn't his personal motto. It was actually just him trying to make me feel better about the fact that I couldn't shut my brain off. I'm telling you, parents wow. are wonderful. Parents, they just, they just want for their, for their children. Did you have those negative thoughts, Amy? Oh, I, when I read Dan's book, it was like I was reading my own story, minus the cocaine. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, no, she didn't. Yep. No, she didn't. I love it. Can you pull that shiv out of my background? Oh, man. She went there. (laughs) I thought about it. No. Uh, No, believe me, I am not without my vices. Mm. I believe Dan knows. Um, But I felt like I was reading my own story. We both came up. And, Robin, you did do local news. And you are biting and scratching and clawing to get to the top. You are working around the clock. You want to get the best story. I mean, you know, I remember I I prided myself on, you know, at the top of the newscast, they would just say, Amy, lead. And I would just have to go find it. And I was like, yes, I'm the go-to. And so when you, 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 you rise up that way, you're working, you know, 100 hour weeks and you love your job, but you are, we are, we were all ambitious. And so, then you basically value yourself based on job performance or what people think of your performance, and you're only as good as your last story. So when I was reading your book, I just I was like, I'm reading my story. This is exactly how I came up and got here. And it's not a recipe for happiness at all, mm. um, because when you only judge yourself based on how you're being judged or, or what people think of you and how you're performing, you're not actually thinking about what makes us happy and what makes us whole and that's about what we give and how we love and you know it takes a moment sometimes a shocking moment to to jar us out of what we think makes us happy mine was my divorce initially and I wrote about it in my book as well Mm -hmm. that was when I realized as much as I was you know just running and gunning and, and trying to get ahead, I was still miserable and I had to figure out my personal life, which I completely put aside, cast aside. It was 100% second or third place in my life. And that's not the way to live and that's not the way to be happy and to have balance. And so I had to face my personal life and deal with my mess that I had created. And I remember when I went to my first therapist, she told me, the reason why your marriage lasted as long as it did is because your passion was in your job and you got what you wanted out of your job wow. and you and you and you just never invested in your relationship and because you were able mm. to find your passion in your job you were able to get by with something that wasn't good enough because it was not anything you ever dealt wow. with wow but i have to tell you it really was fascinating listening to you and i i felt and this is what i hear from other people about my story and i know robin you feel the same when people tell you oh my gosh it's not just me oh, yeah. i'm not alone thank you mm-hmm. and thank you i got that from your book so much dan oh, thank you Everybody's got something. Yep. Everybody, and that's the whole intent of that. But speaking of Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier, also the name of your great podcast. Tell people, I love how you came up with that title. Oh, I was actually talking to a senior producer at Good Morning America, Chris Sebastian. She was asking, this was, this, I got to tell you, meditation is like the only time in my life when I've been ahead of any curve. Like, I'm always <laughs> late to every trend. But somehow I got kind of got on the meditation bandwagon early. And so it was early enough that people thought it was very strange. And I was talking to Chris, who was overseeing my work, and she was like, what is going on with you in this meditation thing? What's the matter with you? Why are you doing that? And and I had to come up with an answer, and I was like, oh, you know, it makes me like 10% happier. 
And um, I could see the look on her face change from scorn to, you know, mild interest. Like, oh, that's a reasonable claim. I, I would do that. And then I was like, that's my shtick. Yeah, you're not yeah, overstating it yeah, yeah, at all. But I love how you say because if you get 10% back on an investment, good whoa, yes. that's amazing. it's great. It's great. Yes. So why not? Because people, you know, it, it's, it's a little grandiose sometimes to go, I'm going to be the happiest person in the whole wide world. No, just be 10% happier. And you got that through meditation. I started meditating. We do different types. Give us a crash course on your – what's the type of meditation sure, that you do? Sure, I do something called mindfulness meditation. The word meditation is a little bit like the word sports, you know. So there's yeah, there right. are a whole range – you know, the water polo and golf don't have a lot in common. I do transcendental. You do transcendental meditation, which is also mm-hmm. – uh, the, the two big kinds of meditation that are most widely practiced, I would say, in the country are – TM, Transcendental mm-hmm. Meditation, and Mindfulness Meditation. Um, that's, I think, a, that's fairly accurate. And they're the two forms of meditation that have been studied the most in the labs. Um, and so Mindfulness Meditation is, to very very simply put, is involves three steps, which is you sit with your eyes closed. You can keep them open a little bit if you want. That's the first step. Uh, you sit comfortably. You don't have to sit in a funny position if you don't want. The second step is to feel your breath coming in and going out. Pick one spot. Usually it's your nose, or your chest, or your belly. Um, you don't have to, you're not thinking about your breath. You're literally, this is kind of different for us. You're just feeling this, the raw data of your physical experience, just feeling that happen. And then the third step is the most important because as soon as you try to do this, your mind's going to go nuts. You're going to start thinking about what am I going to have for lunch? Where did gerbils run wild? Why did Dances <laughs> with Wolves beat Goodfellas for Best Picture in 1991? Whatever. You're just going to go nuts. And that the, that's totally fine. That is the way the mind works. The whole game is just to notice when you've become distracted and to start again and again and again and again. And again, and every time you do that, it's like a bicep curl for your brain. And this is what shows up on the brain scans when they study the, the brains of meditators. TM, as you know, is, is slightly different. It involves a mantra, which is a word that you repeat to yourself silently inside right, your right. own mind. And that can, it, has a, has, it, it performs the function of blotting out a lot of your discursive, chattering thinking. Um, and so it can give you these moments of peace. But, it's, but the same that you were just talking about with TM... Yes, those thoughts come in and you just gently push them away. You don't get mad like, oh, we cannot shut off our minds. I'm looking at Amy right now and she's like, because we asked her earlier, Mm -hmm. do you meditate? And I know you very well. Do you know what I do? What? I medicate. I I drink rosé. Exactly. Is that wrong? <laughs> uh, there's, there's no judge. This is a, no judgment zone. You're, you're, no, I wish that I could contribute. Why do you think you? Why everybody can meditate? I've why? tried. I've tried. I actually got one of those apps on my iPhone, and it like ding. You know, it did that thing. Yeah, yeah. And I was so annoyed. I was so annoyed the whole time. I, I, I wish I had patience. And I've got an app for you. You do? Yeah, it's called Ten Percent Happier. <laughs> How do you like that for shameless plugging? Um, no, here's the thing I say to people uh, who, because I hear this all the time, I can't meditate. This is, this all the time. All, all the, the time. People say it all the time. I so, really don't think I can meditate, so Dan. You can medicate, but you, you can, I don't know if you, you can meditate. meditate. No, you can meditate. This is, this is the, it's based on some faulty assumptions um, that I say this without judgment. I think these are faulty assumptions that I made personally. So this is, um, it, it's, it's not like you're... Um, uh, you're flawed for this. It's just that people, we've been given the wrong messages. People think that meditation is floating off into the cosmos. You're going to get this beatific look on your face. You're going to look like the little Buddha statues they keep in front of the places where you get massages at the airport. 
that ain't going to happen, and that's the wrong message to send. Uh, the fact of the matter is that meditation is hard. It's like exercise. If you go to the gym and you're not panting or sweating, you are cheating. And if you meditate and you all of a sudden find yourself in a thought-free bliss field, you are either enlightened or you have died. And the, 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 the whole game is just to notice when you've become distracted and start again and again and again. And anybody can do that. You just, I think, um, are just not giving yourself a break. Right. Well, I, it's funny. I don't even get massages that often, but the few times I do, I've actually thought, I know, I'm going to try to meditate while I'm getting this <laughs> massage. And I still can't even do it then. You. I start thinking about what's for dinner and what I have to get and the list I have to. And I, it's amazing how I cannot shut no, my no, mind off. You don't have to shut the mind off. This is the thing. All you have to do is notice Preach, when Dan. you've become Preach distracted. It. It. Can I get a witness in here? Preach it. You just have to notice when you've become distracted and start again. So it's totally it. cool when you like if you start doing your to do list or like um, or, you know, thinking of all the people who you, don't you know, stop you want to doing stab the to do list. You no, just, keep you just going. notice when you... it's happened and start again. And you push so away. You just, and, and what is the benefit of that? The benefit is you are constantly besieged and beset by thoughts, urges, impulses and emotions all day long. And you're yanked around by them because you don't have any distance from them. The act of meditation is just seeing, oh, I'm having these uninvited thoughts and urges and impulses all the time i don't need to be controlled by them and so then when the uh, for me like the urge to say the thing that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of my marriage or <laughs> eat the next like the 79th cookie i notice now oh like that's happening in my body i can feel it in my body or my mind and i don't have to do so it, it actually gives you impulse control yes that's yes. it that's it and also among other things yeah and focus the- calm relaxation and mindfulness, which is just the ability to see what's going on in your head without being carried away by it. And there's this thought, as Dan was saying, that you have to be seeing colors and your own and doing all these things. And I remember when I first went with my instructor, Bob Roth, and, you know, when I first did it, I did do that. I was like, oh, my, this is awesome. I mean, I'm just floating. And then I did it on my own. Uh, 3.30 in the morning and I could hear the traffic on the West Side Highway and I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel it was working and I'd go back for my follow-up and I'm kind of discouraged and he's like, well, you know, what's the matter? I said, you know, I, I, you know, I did it and I just don't feel like it was like when I did it with you and he listened and he said, think of it as a big pool, a big pool when you're meditating and there's a deep end and there's a shallow end. You were in the shallow end, but you still got wet. You still got wet. And I was like, oh, that's right. No, I, it's just being aware and being, I love mindfulness. I love that. Yeah. And it's true. And it has helped me. You see me in the mornings. I'm just so happy every morning, right, Amy? I'm just like, oh. But it doesn't mean that you don't get still, you know, when things aren't going right and, and that. But I, 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 I'm with you, Dan. I, I just, it has changed my life. It has really helped at a time when all these things are happening. When you both decided to share your journey, share your story, there is, and I, and I found through being vulnerable, I found strength. Vulnerability can lead to actual strength that I didn't even know. And I, that was not my intent. My intent was, I'm going to help people. And I was, oh my gosh, so helped in return. What did being vulnerable, what in public, what did that do for you, oh, Amy? It's so freeing because when you just tell everybody what you're going through <laughs> yeah. and even the embarrassing stuff, um, 
it's just so freeing because you don't have to pretend. You don't have to hide. How many of us go through the day pretending it's all good or pretending it's great? And when you can just tell people what you're going through, the tough stuff, the hard stuff, and inspire people that you can still get up each day and, yeah. you know, and, 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 and still function and, and function well. There, for me, I felt like a weight was lifted off um, my shoulders. People have said to me, and I don't feel like this at all, you're so brave to share your story. I don't feel brave at all. I feel so lucky to be able to share my story that people will actually want to listen to what I have to say. <laughs> they want to hear about what happened. That's such a, a huge feeling of comfort and relief to me that I get to talk about it because it's my therapy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I have to say this, Dan, I've always, always, you know, loved you both always been big fans of your, you know, professionally and personally. I saw a change in you. I definitely saw a change in you, Dan, after you released your book, after you told your story, after it was out there, and it was like, this is me. And man, you have never seemed happier, lighter. Do you feel that way? Yes. You're, uh, Amy nailed it. You nailed it. I mean, Amy nailed it. In, in the, the, it is... It is completely freeing. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I had a huge secret. And I and some part of me was always worried. Like, I wasn't... The, I, I, I know. I wasn't the smartest when I was doing <laughs> drugs. Like, I wasn't, like, keeping oh, it quiet. And I always felt like, you know, it was going to leak at some point or, you know, or that I was a fraud. Yeah, or I know. Uh, You know, and also... Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a time of television. We all do grew up in a time of television where, you know, Peter Jennings was my mentor and it was a very buttoned down, uh, straight laced type of type of thing. And and um, so to to go out and do this thing and just tell the story and get it all out there and really be just super, super honest. Um, I, I did. It made an irrevocable change in the way I am in public now because mm-hmm. I feel I don't have any. I, there's I nothing to hide now. Oh, nothing. Yeah. And, and like the worst is over. Um, for me, I just so it did uh, the combination between of that and having a baby. Yeah, were the two things I think that really affected a big change. Yeah, in it's, my life. It, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see that Thank in you. you. And and it's not like there was anything wrong before, but there is, uh, there, there is. A, That's my a, wife. She thought. There was <laughs> <wrong>. <laughs> leave leave Bianca alone out of that. Um, but we do, but we should say this. Okay, there are many people who don't want to share, and it's okay. I, I don't want somebody who's listening and saying, you know, I don't want to tell my family. Friend. It's it's a personal choice. And I, I would encourage because it is freeing and you have to, you know, try and understand why are you holding back. But when I speak to people and I say, you know, everybody who is a thriver, because, I, you know, Amy knows I love to say thriver. I don't like survivor because it's like, I'm just. Surviving, oh, but thriving, and we're we're doing that. And I said, "Oh, you know, thrivers, please stand up," and they stand up, and they're you know, you see them. And I said, "You know, there's probably somebody who has what we went through, but they didn't stand up, and it's okay." Because yep. I don't want that person who's still sitting down and not acknowledging that they've gone through it that there's something wrong with them. It's a personal choice. It is an absolute personal choice. I know that I've urged people who feel reticent to share. Because you know the gift that I got, and I know you got too, Robin, I felt so much love. Yeah. I was bowled over at how much love I received from people I didn't expect it from, from my community, from and – it, and it's humbling. I will say that it's hard to accept charity, and I think that's a part of it. No one wants to be pitied. 
No one wants to be right. a charity case. And to let people help you, to let the the women, the mothers of my daughter's school, give me a hot meal every night when I just didn't want anyone to go to a fuss about it. I was embarrassed. I That's the part, I think, that weighs on a lot of people. We mm. don't want to be a burden to anyone. We don't want pity. We don't want the cancer nod. Yeah. You know, oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. But when you let people in and you let people help you, it is such a gift to receive love that I never fully let myself experience until I went through this. Mm-hmm. And so while I respect everyone's decision, I've said it a couple of times to people who I see, they just don't want – they don't know how to handle those emotions that will be given to them. But if they can just let them embrace them and feel that warmth, it's really a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, I often say, you know, how we're supposed to be fighters when we're going through this. And I said so- sometimes, you know, you're too tired to fight. That's okay. Let your loved ones fight for you. You don't have to be strong all the time and, and fight all the time. But I want to say thank you, Amy. When I was diagnosed a second time, you had just started. You just came over from that other place yes. to us. And I was going to be out of work for six months. And you and Elizabeth Vargas, who was also invited to be with us today, but because of the nature of the business, she was traveling and she, at the last minute, she, she couldn't be with us. But she has her something that she's has shared uh, so um, lovingly and just helping people who, especially women who are going through alcohol abuse. We love you, Elizabeth. But you and Elizabeth, for six months, alternating, sitting in that chair, keeping that chair warm for me. I will never forget that. And then fast forward for you to go through what you're going through, for Elizabeth to go through what she was going through. And so you never know when you're and all I wanted to ever do was to repay you and to repay her and then for you to have it. And so that's why uh, this theme song that NDRE has so beautifully written about everybody's got something. And remember to always be kind. You were so kind to me. And so all I was trying to do was to return that in any kind of way um, that I could. You were so kind. I remember because it was something we didn't really know each other that well. No, we and didn't. all of a sudden I came over from that other place and I'm sitting in your seat. <laughs> oh, and I'm we can so say it. We can say the other place. <laughs> NBC. But NBC. I, <laughs> I was sitting in your chair and I remember thinking, I don't deserve to be here. I I I hate that I'm here right now. It felt so awkward and awful. And you, from your hospital bed, would send me an email and say, way to go with that interview. You were so great today. And I just remember thinking, I can't believe she's taking the time to make sure I feel okay sitting in her seat. That was so remarkable to me. And it it got me emotional. I felt so connected to you in those moments because you just had the thought – to reach out to me when you were the one fighting for your life at that moment. And I just, I was so in awe of you then. And I wanted to share a quick story because I love this story. So I sat in Robin's seat half the time while she was gone. And when you came back full time, that was September, your your first birthday. Right, right. And it was only a month later that I was then diagnosed. I know, I know. So it was very quick. And my first round of chemo was December 16th. And I was scared to death. Scared to death. Um, I went to work that morning. I don't even really remember work that morning because no one knows how it's going to affect them, especially that first round. And I walked up to my doctor's office and I opened the door and there in the waiting room is Robin Roberts. Wow. 
And I was confused. Wow. I was like, why is Robin here? Like, does she have an appointment? Because we actually shared the same oncologist. Right, right. But it, it just didn't even dawn on me that you were there for me. And Robin stood up and she said, I heard you were going to be sitting in my seat again. <laughs> the chemo wow. chair. The chemo yeah. chair. This time it was the chemo chair, not the anchor chair. Yeah. And you took That's my amazing. hand mm-hmm. and you walked me down that hallway and you showed me. And we were literally in the same chair and the same room. Yeah. And Robin said, that's where I sat, and that's where my mama sat. And she said, you got this. And I believe you went off to go see the Pope after that. I did. I did, actually. I was all... <laughs> Just all in a day for Robin Roberts. <laughs> no, Pretty incredible. I, I was Pretty on my incredible. way to the airport, yeah. It was a full circle moment for me in so many ways. I, I, I don't even have the words to describe how I felt in that moment, what you did for me. How you supported me and really, more than anything, just by your amazing example, I knew that I had life after cancer and I knew that I could live with cancer. I knew Mm. I could go to work through cancer. And again, not everybody can. Not everybody has the strength. Not everybody has the same treatment. So I'm not acting as if I was a superwoman and other people weren't as strong because that's just not the case. And some people, like we can still get paid. There are other people who don't go to work. They're not going to get paid. They have to go to work. Right. We had a very special circumstance, but you were just such an inspiration to me knowing that I could. I I, I had it in me um, and that you showed me I know the day I, after I got diagnosed, I just wanted to hear your voice and hear your strength and hear your vibrancy and just know that I had hope. Hope was what I needed, and you gave that yeah. to me. Aww. And you guys are both giving that to everybody who watches television here or, or this podcast and gets to hear your stories. I mean, this is incredibly important to people. It's they, incredibly you've important. You've got to have hope. And we talked about your beautiful wife who was there for you, your parents, that wonderful weekend crew. That wonderful GMA weekend crew that you have, who was your support system? Who was around you, Dan, um, after you revealed so much and, and even before that helped you? I got You know, ABC was unbelievable when I decided to, to write this book because I had a lot of hesitation. And the two people who actually came in, came in, in the clutch moment – uh, that the day that I got the email from my mother saying, don't write the book, don't release the book, even though it was written and like in a warehouse and getting ready to be sent to bookstores, I was in shell, I was shell shocked. And I happened to have a pair of meetings that day, one with Diane Sawyer oh. and one with, with Ben uh, Sherwood, who's now the head of all of ABC uh, Disney television at that point was the head of, of ABC News. And I went to Diane. I said, <clears throat> my mother uh, sent me this note and she said, I love your mother, but she's wrong. And we got your back. Mm. Right. Wow. That's our Diane. That's our Diane. And uh, then I went to Ben and I told Ben and Ben started to cry and said, um, I, 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 I feel how upsetting that would be because I, too, love my mother. But this is the right thing to do. The book's going to help a lot of people and we will protect you. Wow. Those are th- those two people. I'm telling you, Diane, we used to call ourselves Thelma and Louise <laughs> in the morning, and she was there holding, literally holding my hand when I announced to the world that I had breast cancer. And she was one of the first people outside of my family when I was diagnosed again. We just happened to be at a book party. It was uh, in the afternoon, and 
I wasn't really ready to share because MDS, uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, didn't really know that much about it. And I saw her and I just melted. I said, I got to talk to you. When are you available? And I, I and we both were, you know, busy and we ran off. I was in the car and she emailed me, said, tell me now. Don't don't wait. And I reached out to her. She's just uh, we are so incredibly lucky, blessed, you you name it, um, to be where we are and to have the people around us. So let's give equal time. We talked about 10% Happier, Better. <laughs> better is your book. Yes. And I love the title of that. And how are you better now, Amy? I am better in every way. I am a better mother. I am a better wife. I'm a better friend. I'm a better daughter. I'm a better sister. And it's all about you know this notion we've heard about, but it just hits you like a ton of bricks when you suddenly feel like you're fighting for your life, when you know what fear can do to you. Like, you realize the only thing we are guaranteed is right now. Nobody knows that tomorrow is coming and nobody knows what's going to happen. But when you have cancer or any sort of life-threatening situation, you are acutely aware of it. I, if I'm being honest... I feel like sometimes, and it's gotten a lot better with time, but there's a noose hanging over my head. You know, I feel like there's a, I'm a ticking time bomb. I'm only as good as my next blood test. You always say that. You I've always, gotten a I'm, lot better okay, with it. But I, I still so. think about it. And here's what I've done. Okay. And this is how I think I'm better. You know, fear can be crippling. Fear is a very powerful thing. But what I've done is I've tried to turn it into something incredibly positive, just to be so insanely grateful for what I have mm -hmm. right now. And so when I get to tuck my girls in at night, when I get to go apple picking with them on the weekend, I just really, really am there with them in the moment because I'm so appreciative that I have it. And I'm always thinking, what if I'm not going to be there for them in 10 years? And I know that's a very, you know, a dark thought. My mom gets upset when I bring it up. But I was like, mom, I have to acknowledge it because it's, it's there. It's in my heart. I feel it. I always, I think we all probably have a, a feeling, oh, I, I've always thought I was going to die young. I definitely always thought I was going to die young. And I don't know if that's just something that's unique to me or if everyone kind of thinks that. But when the cancer diagnosis came, I thought, ah, this is yeah. how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I, everything I always thought is it's going to happen because life's too good. Things are going too well. Something bad has to happen, you know. And so instead of just focusing on the fear of it, I just seize the moment in every way. And that's made me better. Can I share the poem that Ava, yes. your daughter wrote? Yes. Better that you included in the book? As she walks through the door with her head held up high and a sparkle in those big blue eyes, that smile is contagious and I don't know why. This is her battle. Yet she strengthens me. This is her struggle and she can't be free. This is her worry, but I have no doubt she will survive without one pout. She will be strong. I'm getting chills. Stronger than ever. She's a fighter, just like her daughter. It has to get worse before it gets better. And trust me, it will get better. And everyone listening has to realize, I'm looking at you, Dan, Amy. I wish Elizabeth could have been here with us. It always does get better. Don't have those tears in your eyes. These are these are should be tears of joy and gratitude that we are here to share and to those people knowing 
And I've heard already from so many people who have shared their something. And every journey is unique, but when fear knocks, let faith answer the door. That's what I have to say. All right. We end with this little thing on a lighter note. It's called Don't Think, Don't Blink. It's the fishbowl. You know, podcasts have to have a little catch. Come on, Dan. You know this. You know. I, I'm right. learning. Right, no, okay. I'm learning. Don't think, don't blink. Amy's so- podcast is going to have intravenous rosé. <laughs> yeah, That's does a like really good idea. <laughs> so I'm going to pass this fishbowl. You're each going to take one. You're not going to think. You're not going to blink. You're just going to answer what comes to mind. Just, just, uh... Oh, no, all right. I hate all this. All right, there you go. All right, Dan, you first. What does it say? It says, what do you hope your children will never know about you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. What's on the list? Uh, because I've already said everything. Um, but will you, will you, when will you share everything with your son? I don't know. I haven't thought it through. I'm, I just can't believe he exists. He's barely yeah. two. He's barely two, and like we had a whole long infertility struggle, and it was just like a. Mm. So for me, you know, I, I really resonated with what Amy was saying about gratitude from a, just a different. Uh, perspective just i just can't believe that we have this kid <laughs> and that now he's like throwing things at my head um <laughs> what do i hope that he will never know um i hope he will never see me lose my temper i hope he will never know how bad my temper was mm. and um i hope i'll continue to get better to use an amy robot phrase at at not letting the things that worry me or frustrate me or stress me out affect the people i love Beautiful. That is beautiful. Good luck with that, by the way. <laughs> I have an hey, almost 14-year-old. Yeah. Boy, she's coming at you hard. <laughs> I thought she was going to say, I, I mean... got a bottle of rosé for you. <laughs> and what's yours, Amy? All right. I didn't peek, by the way. Okay. All right. Uh, name something that makes you laugh so hard it hurts. I love Drunk History. Have you all watched that? I've heard it's great. Drunk uh, History? Staying on the rosé theme. Yes. <laughs> so they actually have famed historians, and like Lin-Manuel Miranda among them, who then proceed to get completely and totally drunk and then <laughs> have to and, – and they make sure – like we're talking like I like pass out drunk. And, okay, I'm sick a little Always bit. Always good right? television. It's really <laughs> funny. But then they actually – they have to go through the specifics of, of a moment in history like George Washington crossing the Delaware. And then they reenact the narrative, the drunk narrative with actual like – actors that you know and see you know that are famous and it is the funniest thing i it's my friday night fun i laugh <laughs> i just like we'll sit there and watch it and laugh so hard i'm crying i highly I, suggest it okay and you're kind of laughing with them and at them so it's extra fun it's like the double whammy uh, people say it's great people <laughs> I, I, people don't know how twisted amy is she's also got oh, this big horror she, thing she's like love oh horror i know movies. i know she I lo- well, she oh <laughs> Trust me, I know that part. About I'm just her. escaping reality, guys. Is and that don't it? Don't say anything bad about horror movies. She will cut you. <laughs> She's always carrying the I'll shim. send a demon to haunt yes, you. Yes, exactly. Uh, as we come to an end, since we are journalists, <clears throat> and I, I think of like, uh, how, how are we going to sign off? Remember, you know, like, of course, Uncle Walter, and that's the waiters. So, how are you going to sign off? What is your sign off, your final. Your message. I know what mine is. Da, 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 da. Well, then why don't you go first? Hot mess, still blessed. <laughs> Hot oh, mess, like still blessed. Okay, I know what I'm going to say. This is something I actually say to myself before I go on the air each day. Mean what you say, say what you mean. Mm. 
I don't always succeed, but I try. It's a good North Star. And what's that other one? You say, uh, stop it some more? Yeah. Well, that's when someone's giving you a compliment. You can just say, stop Stop it it some some more. more. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's really good. And yours, Dan? Uh, here's the, here's the thing that I think is like core to my, to the extent that I have a message now is that it it just goes back to our discussion about meditation that it turns out the science suggests that the mind is trainable, just like the body is trainable, that you can change your mind just the way you can train your bicep in the gym. And that is a huge and empowering and radical notion. And more people need to know that and take advantage of it. Optimism is a muscle that gets stronger with use. I agree with that, too. Optimism is a muscle that gets stronger with use, and that's what you're talking about. Every aspect of our body we can train, and we can train that, too. Thank you for making your mess your message and for sharing your something with us. Hot mess, still blessed. Thank you for having us on. Next time, please don't put me next to Amy. I wish the conversation didn't have to end, but that is our show for today. And I got to say, it was a special one for me. Just so great to be with Dan and Amy, because we rarely get the chance to just sit around and talk with each other. And I'd like to extend that idea by encouraging all of us to do just that. Take the chance to share your story openly whenever possible. In fact, it's been so great to hear from listeners of this podcast. And I'm grateful, very grateful to everyone writing to us about their somethings. We hear you, and we'd love to keep that conversation going. So if you've gone through a something, let us know about it. Write us at robinpodcast.com. And while you're at it, become a subscriber. Plus, if you are enjoying Everybody's Got Something, please take a moment to write a review on iTunes. And we thank you so much for that. It truly helps us. Speaking of iTunes, if you want some wisdom and humor mixed in with a dose of enlightenment, be sure to check out Dan Harris's podcast, 10% Happier. And here's to the podcast pod who always make me, oh, much more than 10% happier, John, Steve, Josh, Andy, Evelyn, Alex, Gabe, Danielle, Rennie, Ida, Jade, Debbie, and Julian. Until we meet again, wait for it one more time. Come on, you know what's coming. Say it with me. Hot mess, still blessed. I'm Robin Roberts.